Hey there. We at Blue Wire just wanted to take a second to thank you for listening to this podcast. We know everything outside is pretty scary and uncertain, but we're committed to helping you get through your day by talking about the sports and teams that you love most. If you're looking for more great podcasts to distract you, check out BlueWirePods.com. Thanks for listening. Enjoy the podcast and stay safe. Blue Wire. With the first pick in the 2009 NFL Draft, the Detroit Lions select Matthew Stafford. Quarterback. Stafford, step it up. Going left side. Watch Calvin. Enzo got him. Oh, baby, that was a rocket. And it's picked off. Intercepted by Darius Slade. No one will catch him. Touchdown. Hello and welcome to episode 56 of the Michael Rothstein Show coming at you live. Well, almost live. It's late Friday night, so it's a little bit tired. I'm not quite as relaxed as Roger Goodell has been at the end of the third round here in the draft, but it's been a fun two days so far. I'm your host, Michael Rothstein. And this episode is sponsored as always by betonline.ag where you can use the promo code BLUEWIRE to get a welcome bonus. So two rounds are in the books. The Lions have made four selections, and frankly, it's a draft I like. Three of the four picks, absolutely no problem with. One of the picks had a bit of a problem with, but they made up for it by what they did later. So we already covered Jeff Okuda in the first round. The cornerback, number three overall pick from Ohio State. He should start right away. He was really impressive in his introductory press conference today with the Lions media over Zoom. Thought he handled himself really well. Seemed a little bit guarded, but you would expect that in a lot of ways, frankly, when all of your bosses are also on the call, which Bob Quinn and Matt Patricia were. So I look at that and I say, all right. That's fine, but he was interesting. He talked a lot about his preparation, talked a lot about that. And I talked to a couple of other people about him as well, that his mental makeup, his mental preparedness is really what sets him apart and could make him a really strong player really early for the Lions. He's somebody that watches a ton of tape, reaches out to guys to learn as much as he can. He spent a lot of time with his DBs coach last year, Jeff Halfley, and about just studying other receivers, studying quarterbacks, trying to learn as much as he could. And I expect that to continue in the NFL. He's really, I know I said it a little bit last night or in yesterday's podcast, that he's really kind of a prototypical Matt Patricia player. After hearing him talk again on Friday, I truly, truly believe that even more. This is a really good pick for the Lions. And now we'll go to day two. And they started with... Frankly, a little bit of a surprise, and that's what I was talking about with the one pick I had a little bit of an issue with. They were sitting there at 35, and they had a bunch of defensive options, both at edge and at tackle, that they could have taken, and instead they took DeAndre Swift out of Georgia. Now, the issue I have is not that they took DeAndre Swift, because DeAndre Swift is a really good player. He's a guy who a lot of people thought would go in the first round, perhaps in the middle of the first round. He was sitting there early in the second round. It was a value pick 
in my opinion, one that made a lot of sense. He was probably the top running back in the draft, even though he wasn't the first one selected because Kansas City took uh, Edwards Hilaire at the end of the first round yesterday or Thursday. Sorry for keep saying yesterday. But you look at that and you say, okay, yeah, they got a good pick there, but they really need defensive help, especially on the defensive line. At that time, we didn't know that they would then get Julian O'Clara, but you looked at the board, and, and you didn't know then that a lot of the defensive talent might fall. Like A lot of the guys that I was looking at potentially at 35 ended up falling to kind of the mid-40s, early 50s. Guys like A.J. Apensa, guys like maybe a Neville Gallimore, guys like a Blacklock, guys like a Marlon Davidson. You see all of those, and they fell a lot more, so... Maybe Bob Quinn knew what was going on, read the board a little bit, read the situation a little bit, and realized that, hey, if I can get value for the best running back in the draft, maybe that would make the most sense to me. So I think that that's what he did. What they're getting in DeAndre Swift is a guy who can protect the passer, which is key because that means he can be on the field in third downs. They get a guy who's explosive. They got a guy who can catch passes out of the backfield. They got really a three-down back that they don't necessarily need to use as a three-down back because they still have on Johnson. They still have Bo Scarborough in their SEC-heavy backfield. And what you're looking at there is probably the start of a running back by committee that they're going to use, and at least early on. And don't forget, Matt Patricia likes to kind of ease his running backs in. You saw that with on Johnson specifically. When he was a rookie a couple of years back, and he ran really well. Remember, he got the broke the 100-yard game streak in his third start, or his third game, rather, against New England. It was a huge deal, and it took a while for him to get a lot of work, really until week five or six in the regular season. So I figure they're going to use their backs in more of a committee than you might think, even though they use a second-round pick again on a running back. And a part of that strategy will be to basically try to get all three backs to November, December, healthy and running strong versus wearing them out early in the season. And I think what you've got in a guy like DeAndre Swift is a guy that can really take a lot of pressure off on Johnson, who right now the goal should be to just get him to play 16 games and, and to play well in 16 games because he hasn't done that over the first two years of his career. One thing to note with on Johnson is based off of the numbers I looked at, I don't know how much guaranteed money, if any, he has left at this point. So that's potentially something to just think about when you're looking at on Johnson's future. But I imagine at least for now, he's definitely part of their immediate future for 2020 with Detroit but he needs to stay healthy. This is all of a sudden, now that they took DeAndre Swift, a huge year for Carrion Johnson. Then, as we were talking about, looked at it and it was like, ah, you know, they, they maybe should have gone defense there. Well, Julian Okwara all of a sudden was still sitting there at pick 67. If you don't know much about Julian Okwara, here's what you need to know. A year ago, at this time, he was thought that he would be a potential top 10 pick in last year's draft. He was coming back for a senior season. He was had his sights set on a whole bunch of records. Just didn't really work out for him his senior year. Then he got hurt. He fractured his left fibula, which he says is fine. He's completely good to go. 
But that sent him tumbling down draft boards. A healthy Julian O'Quarr is probably not sitting there at pick 67. He might have been the Lions pick at 35. He might have not even gotten to 35. And the Lions snagged him there. It was an excellent pick. And listen, if a team is going to know about Julian O'Quara, it's the Lions because his brother, Romeo O'Quara, is a Lions defensive end right now. So they know a lot about Julian O'Quara. It's a really cool story. The two brothers playing together. It's obviously not a massively unique story since the McCordys have done it before. Some The Griffins have done it in Seattle over the last few years. But this is a, another really cool story. Again, they play the same position, too. They're both defensive ends, edge rushers. And what you're getting from Julian O'Quarrie, you'll hear in a little bit from my guest tonight, Pete Sampson from The Athletic, who's who covered Romeo O'Quarrie and Julian O'Quarrie. So he was able to give perspective on both of those guys. And I think you'll learn a little bit about kind of how Julian O'Quarrie maybe fell a little bit on draft boards and what he might really bring to Detroit early on in his career. It was a good interview with a guy I've known for a while, and, and hopefully you'll learn something from that. So I won't get too much into Julian O'Quara now just because you'll hear that in a couple of minutes. But before we get there, figure it's worth definitely looking at the other pick that they took in the third round. They traded up. They traded up from 85 to 75 to get Jonah Jackson, the guard from Ohio State. And here's why this is valuable too, because they needed a starting guard out of this draft, or at least someone who could come in and compete with Kenny Wiggins and Odea Boucher and Bo Benchwall and Russell Bodine and Joshua Garnett in this crowded area. So they traded up and they got Jonah Jackson. They worked Jonah Jackson out at the Senior Bowl. They coached him at the Senior Bowl, so they know what they're getting from Jonah Jackson. They probably felt more comfortable with him than maybe other teams in the league did because they coached him for a week. So they know his work ethic. They know what they're getting in meeting rooms. That's key, especially when it comes to offensive linemen. So you have to feel like they really have a good handle. And this is where coaching the Senior Bowl might have really come into play for them is in the Jonah Jackson selection at pick 75. They did give up a little bit of capital. Obviously, they gave up 85. They gave up the pick 142 pick in the fifth round or the 184 pick in the sixth round. They dropped down to 197, I believe it was, in round six. And they also obviously picked up 75. So they gave up a pick, so they gave up a little bit of draft capital, but they were able to potentially land another starter. I really, again, like what they've done so far in this draft. I think they've found three starters potentially from day one out of the first three rounds of the draft, and we'll see what happens with Julian O'Quara, where maybe they actually went four for four if he's able to impress. And that's a really good haul for Bob Quinn in a draft that he had to nail. And so far, really feel like he's done a really sharp, really strong, really good job with it. So right after this break, Pete Sampson will be on the show. We'll talk a little bit more about Julian O'Quara, and then we'll preview the last day of the draft on the other side of that interview with Pete Sampson. We'll be right back in a minute. With currently no NBA, NHL, or Major League Baseball, you might think there's nothing to bet on. Well, you would be wrong. Our exclusive partner, betonline.ag, still has hundreds of events, games, and props for you to wager on. From their online casino to poker and blackjack, they're bringing Vegas to you. 
You're missing the NFL besides the draft, obviously. No problem. Bet Online has live daily Madden NFL 20 simulations you can bet on. You can still bet on Survivor, Big Brother, American Idol, stock prices, even the Nathan's Hot Dog Eating Contest. It's all open 24 hours a day. It's all online. Use the promo code BLUEWIRE to join today and receive your new welcome bonus. Bet Online, your online wagering solution. Now, back to our show. My guest tonight on another shortened episode, draft episode of the Michael Rothstein Show is a good friend of mine for many, many years. He covers Notre Dame for the athletics, so he's going to give us all the lowdown on Julian O'Quara. He is Pete Sampson. Pete, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure, Mike. Good to be with you. Yeah, I know. I feel like this has been a long time coming, uh, just from our various stops along the way. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, there was like, what, six Notre Dame guys kicking around the Lions camp, and I actually drove up to, to cover them while you were doing Yeah, stuff. that was during the... All the Notre Dame guys went away, and now they're coming back. I know. That was during the Golden Tate, Joseph Fourier, Theo Riddick, TJ Jones... Braxton Cave, I think, was there. Braxton Cave was, I think, around at that point. Um, there was, like, a couple of other people. Yeah, that was crazy. Like, there was one point during the Jim Caldwell era where it seemed like they had, like, at one point, like, eight guys from Notre Dame. And they were all guys that, I, that you and I covered at the same time during my four years there, which was even more baffling. Um, so, obviously, the new Lions guy has a lot of connections already to Detroit because Julian Aquara is the younger brother of Romeo Aquara, who you also covered at Notre Dame. But what are the Lions getting in Julian? Because I think there is some question there because of the injury. Yeah, the broken uh, fibula against Duke. I mean, he played most of his senior season, and I, I think that there's, there's probably a misperception based on some of the draft analysis I've seen that, like, somehow that happened earlier in the year or that impacted his season overall. I talked to Julian a couple weeks ago and I think a, a lot of the pre-draft run-up that he had with teams were, was him sort of explaining why his senior year wasn't as good as his junior year. And he had to sort of own that a little bit because this is, I mean, this is somebody in February or January, he, he was sort of one of those college juniors who makes a very public decision to return for his senior year, expected to be a first round pick. And even when he was healthy, um, just wasn't as productive a, a, a senior as a junior. Still very productive, but, I mean, he came into the year thinking he was going to have 18 sacks, um, you know, really sort of challenged for some Notre Dame single-season records. Uh, I mean, a long, lanky athlete off the edge, really sort of more powerful and strong than he would appear when you just sort of look at him in, you know, shoulder pads or jerseys. But, um I think there, there's still a lot of growth and upside to his game. Um, I don't expect the injury to impact him a whole lot, but I mean, he's, he just said that like he knew he was disappointed with his, his senior year. So I, I think he sort of comes into the NFL with, with something to prove. So the, what happened his senior year? Because yeah, I mean, I remember you and I talking after his junior season where you're like, this dude could be a top 10 pick. Yeah. What happened his senior year that for pre-injury? Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting to look at the draft because he actually went against three first-round pick offensive tackles, or four if you really want. Uh, I guess, yeah, you could go four if you wanted to sort of include Georgia having both of their offensive tackles. So, you know, maybe that was part of it. Um, 
I think he got in his own head a little bit about, you know, trying to press to get sacks. I think losing Jerry Tillery was a first-round pick. A, a defensive tackle a year earlier impacted him. Teams were able to sort of scheme and game for him a little bit more. Uh, and then they ran into a bunch of teams that were just trying to get the ball out in 1.5 seconds. One of the few teams that didn't was Virginia, and he had three sacks in that game. So, I think, I mean, it was a combination of stuff, but I think some of it was just he pressed too hard uh, to try to prove that he could be a top 10 pick. Uh, and then the injury obviously ended his season at the beginning of November. Did you get the sense when he got hurt that he felt like he'd be able to be back? Because I actually asked him on the conference call with him, and he was very, very quick to say, yes, I'm fine. I'm ready to go. Did that injury really, I guess, A, get to him? And also, did you get a sense when you talked to him a few weeks ago that he was good? Yeah, I did get a sense that he was good. Um, he could have run a 40 in Indianapolis, but didn't because it, it wouldn't have been very good. Uh, but he said that he had been running around the time of Indianapolis. Uh, I don't think the injury sort of bummed him out or anything. And it, this is when I talked to him a couple of weeks ago, we sort of went through sort of the injury. How do you overcome that? You know, how does that affect you mentally? And I, I think it's worth remembering his brother played with Jalen Smith whose career really went sideways uh, with an injury at Notre Dame. So I think Julian, even though he didn't play with Jalen Smith, he knows it could be, it could have been way worse uh, in terms of his injury. So I think he had an overall pretty positive outlook on it. So, okay. So obviously, you know, he seems like he thinks he's healthy. You get the sense that he could have run a 40. When he was going into his junior year, what was the sense at that point? Because it seems like that's when he came out of, I don't want to say nowhere, but it seemed like nowhere. He was primed for a breakout junior year. I, you know, I don't know if a lot of people felt like he was going to have as dominant a junior year as he actually did, but he had flashed a bunch as a sophomore as sort of like a third or fourth defensive end, in the, like a rotational guy, basically. But we, you would just sort of see him walk back offensive tackles uh, who are 300 pounds when he's maybe 235 at the time. Uh, so there was a natural strength to his game. Um, they felt like, okay, this guy's got a chance to be really, really good. Uh, and then I believe as a junior, you know, he has the eight sacks, I think 12, 14 tackles for loss. And the way Brian Kelly described it, was they put together a highlight reel where he had 18 quarterback pressures that they felt like could have been sacks. So even when he wasn't closing the deal on plays, he was disruptive and around the football. So it's, I, I, he just sort of has this natural power to him that you would not suspect for a guy who's built that way. Um, Cause I think when he showed up to Notre Dame, he was probably 210 pounds. It was not, he was not sort of put together like, this guy's a surefire lock to be a star at Notre Dame. But um, I think that sophomore year, especially I think the Michigan State game in particular, was one where you're just like, okay, there's, there's some good stuff happening here. Uh, he's, he's got a chance to be really special. So you mentioned at the top when we were talking that he's a really lanky type of athlete. Is he someone that can play standing up and with his hand in the dirt? Or is there an area where he's maybe much better between the two, because it would seem like that would be the way Matt Patricia uses guys flexibility wise. If he can do both of those things, he would be in a much better position to get on the field earlier. 
He could. Uh, they didn't really do a lot with that him a lot in that role with him at Notre Dame, but there's there's no doubt. Like you look at the way Romeo Okwara is put together. Like he's much thicker and broader than Julian is. Julian to me, like his shoulders are a little bit more narrow. Uh, you know, somebody who can sort of twist and turn uh, while you're you know, running through traffic around the offensive line. You know, so that that's somebody I think could come off the edge. Whereas Romeo, you know, if, if Romeo was it stayed at Notre Dame under the current staff. He probably would have been the guy that bumped inside on sub packages on third and long to sort of play defensive tackle. They like to take their biggest defensive end and move them inside. Whereas Julian is like an edge guy all the way. So I would think that, you know, if you could walk him up to the line of scrimmage and put him in a two point stance, that's, that's something that he could do. So you mentioned Romeo, obviously. They positionally are similar, yet it would seem different. Certainly build-wise, they're very different. What about personality-wise? Because Romeo is one of the more interesting guys the Lions have on this roster. Are, we, are they getting another one like him? Or I don't think you're going to be writing any features about uh, Julian O'Carr's uh, photography career. Um, Damn it! <laughs> I'm sorry to say that, but I mean, Julian O'Carr is more just like kind of a happy-go-lucky college kid. Um, you know, Romeo, even when he was at Notre Dame, even though this didn't come out to the very end, you could tell that there was something deeper with him. Um, you know, whether not necessarily photography or music or art, like there was just a lot happening there. Um, with with Julian, I think he's he was more outgoing than Romeo was at Notre Dame, you know, kind of more goofy than Romeo was at Notre Dame. Um, so I, their personalities, I, I mean, you can ask Julian about that. I'm sure that you will down the road, but like when you ask him, are you similar? Julian sort of laughs. He's like, no, not really at all. Um, you know, they're, they're, yeah, Julian is just more your typical college kid. And Romeo felt like sort of an old soul, uh, from when he was 20 years old. You mentioned before, obviously that, you know, when Romeo played there, he saw the Jalen Smith injury pretty up close and that, maybe weighed into Julian a little bit. Like, did you sense that Julian leaned a lot on Romeo, not only during that, but just throughout his career? Like, are they tight like that where at least from a maybe football knowledge standpoint, Romeo has kind of been that mentor or is that not even? I, you know, they're close, but I wouldn't say that they're in a position where like Julian is asking Romeo, what should I do here? What do you think about this move? What, you know, what agent should I pick out? You know, where should I train? Like, I don't think it goes that close. I mean, I mean, I think there was, there was one time we were talking to Julian and Romeo had come back to Notre Dame to give a talk in one of the, I don't know what the school was, but Julian sort of remarked in an interview that he didn't even know Romeo was back on campus. Um, so that's, I mean, they're close, but I don't think it's a situation where, um, I think they're they're talking two times a day or texting all the time. I think, and especially over the last couple of years, I mean, you know, the life of a Notre Dame football player is there's not a lot of free time in there. Um, yeah. So I don't think that you know, they they both sort of understood that that you know they're not going to spend a whole lot of time talking to each other all the time because they both know how busy each other is. Do you get the sense uh, where, let me rephrase that, where do you think, because Notre Dame's had a lot of good defensive players, a lot of good rushers in the last, I don't know, decade, decade and a half. Where does he fit? 
in that? Like, where does he does he have a comp from another another Notre Dame player, another guy that you saw that you're like, yeah, when he was healthy, he was really close to this. You know, he doesn't. Um, you know, I feel like Notre Dame's defensive linemen who have gone pro have been more bigger, stouter type of athletes like Tillery, Sheldon Day, Stefan Tuitt. I mean, Aaron Lynch was here for a minute. Um, you know, those guys were much more physically imposing. Isaac Rochelle was a bigger bodied guy. Um, they haven't really had a whole lot of Julian O'Quara types come through. I mean, re- really, Romeo would be is not a perfect comparison, but is fairly similar in terms of Romeo when he came to Notre Dame was undersized, young um, for his class. I think he was 17 years old as a freshman. Uh, Julian is not sort of in that weird age dynamic where he's a year younger than everybody else. But um, I don't – there really isn't a great player comparison from Notre Dame for Julian O'Parr because they just haven't had a lot of 6'4", skinny, flexible, long-armed guys uh, that can rush the passer just and beat you one-on-one off the edge. Uh, he, he was really a, a big sort of dynamic player for Notre Dame's pass rush because they, they just have not had a lot of guys like him. Was that a – this is obviously getting way more into like the Notre Dame part of it, but was that a recruiting shift by, by Brian Kelly or was that just he was kind of almost a unicorn for them because of Romeo? Um, that's a good question. I, I think that, you know, it was intentional that they needed to get better at the defensive line. Um, he came in a, with a class. Uh, Dalen Hayes, uh, Khalid Kareem were a couple like sort of high-end recruits um Khalid Kareem I think will probably go in the, the third or fourth round so it was it was a year where Notre Dame, his freshman year Notre Dame was awful um you know it's the 2016 four and eight year so they really just took they sold playing time because they didn't have anybody and then those guys played a ton on a bad team um so I, I don't I don't know if it was like an intentional change in recruiting dynamics as much as holy cow, we're desperate for guys who come in and who can come in and play right away. And I mean, really with Julian Aparr, they lucked into it because they had the Romeo connection, but he was part of a really outstanding defensive end class. And then ultimately Julian proved to be the best of a, a very talented group. Last thing I've got for you as uh, we're recording this pretty late here on Friday night is where do you think he actually projects in the NFL? Because you've seen a lot of guys come through, whether they're linebackers or they're you know, as you said, heavier, kind of more stouter defensive lineman. Where does he project, you think, in the NFL? I mean, I think he's a sort of your pure weak side defensive end um, who could be a three-down player. Um, you know, has not – has dropped in coverage a little bit. Wouldn't probably ask him to do a ton of that. But, uh, I mean, I think he's somebody who makes a difference off the edge who can beat an offensive tackle one-on-one. Um you know, at Notre Dame, they have not had many of those guys. I'm sure in the NFL, that's that's a premium position as well. But Julian Aquar is somebody who can you can stick him out there and say, go beat that offensive tackle one on one, or collapse the pocket. I think he can do both, speed and power. Um, I think he's a really good value pick at the, at the top of the third round for anybody. Um, and I think Detroit's probably fortunate that he, that he fell to to where they were picking. Pete, thanks so much for coming on. I appreciate it. People can check out your work, obviously, at The Athletic. They can check out your podcast with our other buddy, Matt Fortuna. At, uh, it's The Shamrock, right? It is The Shamrock. It is The Shamrock. So uh, thanks for coming on, for taking a couple minutes. And uh, 
Maybe I'll be on again if uh, they get 500 more Notre Dame players. I'll talk to you tomorrow when they draft a Louis Gilman at safety. Yeah, I don't know if I'm gonna if we're gonna be going that route, but we'll. See. <laughs> Fair enough. Thanks, Mike. Thanks to Pete for coming on the show. And before we get out of here, we'll take a quick look at day three tomorrow. You look at some of the guys who are still left on the board and where the Lions need some players. And that starts at defensive tackle because the Lions haven't addressed it yet. And it's very possible that they go there early because there is a guy, Jason Strobridge, talked about him. I think it was maybe even last night a little bit. The Lions really looked at him a lot during the Senior Bowl. They spent a lot of time with him. Well, guess what? He's still on the board. He's the top defensive tackle left on the board. And it would not surprise me at all if he's still sitting there if the Lions end up taking him early in the fourth round. So that would be one place to look if, for whatever reason, he's not there. Maybe they would look at Rashard Lawrence from LSU. Maybe they would look at Benito Jones a little bit later, but at that maybe Raquan Williams from Michigan State. So, but at that point, I, I think you're maybe getting a little bit lesser quality of player. Jason Strobridge, though, a player that they do like, and they've had some success on the defensive line in the fourth round before. Where else do they still need to go? Well, there is receiver, and possibly their top target at receiver on the day three might be Antonio Gandy Golden, another senior bowl guy who is out of Liberty. He's tall, 6'4", 223 pounds. And if, for whatever reason, they can't get Strobridge, or maybe they don't want to go with Strobridge, maybe Gandy Golden is their pick early. But receiver, a bit deeper. They can maybe get a receiver a little bit later. K.J. Hill is still out there from Ohio State. Donovan Peoples-Jones from Michigan, who's a very trait-heavy player. And if you remember the conversation with Field Yates, how important that trait-heavy situation is. And then you've got guys like Courtney Davis from Texas A&M, James Prochet from SMU. You can probably get a good receiver in the fifth round if you wait. Desmond Patton from Washington State. Because remember, this is a guy who doesn't need to play right away, and it's still a very deep receiver class. So the Lions might have played this right here. Quarterback, the other spot that possibly could be Someplace the Lions look. Jake Fromm, Jacob Eason's still there. And then there is Anthony Gordon. While they did trade away one of their fifth-round picks, Anthony Gordon's a guy from Washington State. I've been talking about it for a long time. Keep an eye on him tomorrow. If for whatever reason Anthony Gordon's not there and they decide to go quarterback late, Steven Montez could be a guy to watch as well out of Colorado. Pay attention to those two guys, just saying. Other than that... uh, you know, it's really tough to predict at this point. I think Braden Mann, the punter, look for him late. Maybe that 197 pick that they got back in the uh, in the trade for Jonah Jackson, that is potentially a possibility. Maybe they go in the seventh round and take Braden Mann, the punter from Texas A&M. And one last spot, although it's going to be kind of a spot that you may not like, tight end. They could use another one, and there are a couple good targets out there. Bryson Hopkins from Purdue could be a guy that they look at. And Thaddeus Moss, that last name, he's the son of Randy Moss. He's got great hands. He's come on late. Pay attention to him, too. Again, maybe not early on here, but that fifth round area, they still have a few picks left. They still can make some moves as well. Bob Quinn's been no stranger to trading. So don't be surprised if 
they maybe make a move or two tomorrow, see what happens. Because right now they've got, by my count, four picks left, 109, 166, 197, and 235. So they can still fill some needs. Obviously, it would be more with depth players, but you hit on one or two of these guys, and maybe you have a chance of a really good class building on what you've already done, which is, to my opinion, on paper, just on paper, Bob Quinn's best class to date. That's it for tonight's show. Really appreciate it, or I should say this morning as we're once again finishing this up early in the morning. Thanks, as always, to my producer, David Woodley, to Blue Wire, to Regents Field, and to Bet Online for hosting this podcast and sponsoring this podcast. Really appreciate that. Thanks to my guest, Pete Sampson, for coming on the show. Make sure to check out his podcast, The Shamrock. You can find that wherever good podcasts are or listen to and read his work in The Athletic. And that's about it. You know, Follow me on Instagram, on Twitter, at Mike Rothstein, on Facebook at Michael Rothstein Journalist, and check out all my work at ESPN.com. We'll have maybe a Facebook chat before the draft kicks up again, but we'll probably maybe just do Facebook or Instagram after the draft, draft is over, maybe at some point during the draft as well tomorrow. And we'll have another podcast for you coming at you Sunday. Really appreciate you sticking with us. And one last thing, don't forget, if you can, check out A2 Neighbors. Been mentioning them all week. They're trying to help feed frontline workers. Check them out. A2Neighbors.GivingFuel.com backslash COVID-19. They're helping local restaurants feed hospital workers in the Ann Arbor area. Can't speak highly enough about them. And with that, We'll chat with you tomorrow.